It's My Little Underground. I'm Peter A. This week on the show, we have Jared Doherty of Screaming Females. We talked about their new album, Desire Pathway. And Screaming Females has been a very important band in my life for the past eight years or so. And they put me on to this great legendary ska band called The Selector. And they've also been a part of some of the best shows that I've been to, including a show that The Screaming Males played in a movie theater in Times Square a couple of years back, a phenomenal show that we talked about at Music Hall of Williamsburg back in 2015, and Jared also talks about upcoming shows the Scream Males have in Alaska, and also their experiences playing in Honolulu, in Hawaii, and lots of great punk tales from Jared Doherty of Screaming Females, and he's right here on My Little Underground. Jared. Welcome to My Little Underground, one-third of the Screaming Females. So happy to have a Screamel on this show. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, but I want to thank you guys for putting me on to The Selector. Uh, when you guys covered on my radio, I loved the song so much, I went to my local record store and I bought Too Much Pressure. And it's unbelievable. Such oh, yeah. Album. Oh, yeah. Have you have you checked out Dance Craze yet? The vi- The film? No. Oh man, you gotta check it out. So it's uh, someone did a documentary um, of a lot of those two tone bands around that oh, time. Oh, I'm writing this down. And oh my god, it's like the actual documentary itself is like I don't know. It's not like the best thing ever. They kind of frame it as like the history of um, of the UK, like uh, youth culture and stuff. But it's not like fully formed idea. But the live footage in that is unbelievable. And Pauline oh. from the Selector just like. It's amazing because, I mean, that was through a lot of those bands. They look so good while they're just fully going for it, you know? And it's unbelievable because as someone go out there and play for 45 minutes an hour or whatever, you start drenched in sweat, whatever. Pauline just looks, she's just fully jumping around stage, going wild, and looks like she could just be ready for a photo shoot. (laughs) Yeah, like I'm looking at the back of the cover of Too Much Pressure. They're all in suits. They're all like... They're going to the prom or something like that or, or a job <laughs> interview. And they're just, there's so much energy there. And yep. the drumming on that album is sick. It's oh, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so, that's something yeah. that um, with, with a lot of that two-tone stuff, I think something that gets sort of forgotten is that it is really connected to punk. And some of those people had been playing in punk bands or would go on to play in punk bands. But there was also a lot of like R&B bands in the UK. And that was like a really popular thing. So some of those people were not coming from the like, oh, I just picked up my first guitar kind of like, you know, moment I learned three chords. They're like, oh, no, no, I've been playing in R&B bands for the last five years, like having to like, you know, play three hour sets, you know, down at the club on uh, Friday or Saturday and play all the hits, you know. So I feel like there's a cool fusion there. But it's important to remember, it's like, I feel like by the time you get to the the 90s or something, a lot of ska bands strictly came from punk. But some of those people, it's like they weren't coming from punk. They were coming from R&B. They were coming from Caribbean music. They're coming from different backgrounds, you know. What you get is 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 like a punk product, you know yeah, what I mean? Because sure. all all like every any kind of music that we listen to is rooted in, in somewhere. But then like with the selector, is such like it's so raw and unhinged. But there's there's good song structure there. Like you can say that about any punk band. Like Minor yeah. Threat, they always like Ian McKay. Every interview I hear him talk about, he's saying melody. That's that's what he's using. That's like the re- common refrain. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it, it, this is your idea to cover this band. And then Marissa brought up, let's do on the radio, right? Yeah. 
this was for a, a release for for a comic book. Yeah, yeah, a comic uh-huh. book got in touch with us, um, and the artist, uh, he's done a lot of like pretty big work, but it turned out he had um, been somebody who was like around New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is where our band started. Yeah. Um, so we had like communicated with him before. It wasn't like he was a close friend or something, but it was like, oh yeah, like Marissa drew this thing for a record I was involved in one time and like that kind of stuff. So he got in touch with us and was like, yeah, I'm putting out this new book and we're going to do um, a seven inch series that goes along with it. And the book takes place in the eighties and has this punk rock background. So he's trying to get all these bands to cover eighties um, uh, kind of like punk and punk adjacent tracks and that was the one that just popped off for us like just immediately that was the one we thought of <laughs> are you guys uh are you guys big comic readers i would say i come and go with it when i was young i was really into superhero um comics especially superman like in the wake of the death of superman there was like the four supermen who were trying to battle it out and there was like the kind of like every man superman and then there was the like um the bad one who was like he had the powers of superman but he was willing to like kill people and stuff which obviously superman generally didn't do so i was really into that and followed it for many years um and then I know Marissa is very into underground comics and graphic novels and things, um, which I've I've read some really good ones of those. Uh, I about halfway through reading Sandman, which I never read when it was actually out, kind of missed that. But um, I I have been going back I'm through two of the four books of the four like anthologies right now on that one. Have you ever read March, the John Lewis graphic novel? I have not. Oh man, it's great. I've only read the first one, but it is unbelievable. It is visually and well, conceptually, it's really good. And you learn a lot about John Lewis and that time period of the civil rights movement. But yeah. it's really cool. I'm not a huge, like crazy comic person, but you know, a good graphic novel is a good graphic novel. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it yeah. kind of brings some stuff. I think that's an interesting example because, you know, obviously most people think of like superheroes or whatever, but there is like like somebody like John Lewis, there's there is this um physical element to some some you know some of the things he was involved in that I feel like you could capture in a comic book in a really interesting way. Yeah, and he was a punk rocker too. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, you know, that's it's crazy. But you guys did the new album Desired Pathway in Minnesota at Pachyderm uh studios. And what's interesting is like you you guys kind of have a history with Minnesota too. You guys did a Radio K session years ago, uh, which I absolutely love. That's how I found out about Radio K was your live performance, which is cool. Like the screaming females has put me on to so many different things and different directions. So I know this, this studio is famous for doing, um, you know, in utero years ago, with Steve Albini and all that. So does that have any significance to you at all? Like when you guys record somewhere or go play a show or play with certain band or whatever, do you think of the, the historical significance to it at all? Does that mean anything? Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially as uh, we've lost so many, um, uh, venues over the years that we've played as a, as a band, like historic places that have so many things have gone down. Um, you, you appreciate it, especially when they suddenly no longer exist. You know, um, I think for Pachyderm, with a, a situation like that, um, it's like there's there's two sides to it, and the the most important side is it's just technically like a world class studio. You know, and that's why all these famous records have gone down there um, is because you can make a record like that at this studio, you know? Um, So that's the most important part. So it's not like necessarily we're going to be in the studio trying to like 
find Kurt Cobain's ghost and like summon him for the session or something, you know, but, um, but, you know, we know some people, we know, we know Steve Albini pretty well at this point. So, you know, we're texting him and stuff while we're there and that the studio has this built in sauna. And he was talking about like when Nirvana was in the sauna and had some funny story about them in the sauna. And, uh, so stuff like that does come up and you can't, you can't ignore it. And we found the picture. There's like a famous picture of Nirvana and Albini sitting in front of the fireplace and it looks exactly the same in the studio. So, so yeah, like that stuff, it, it, like it, we don't ignore it for sure. We're, we're aware of it. Um, but ultimately the reason we go there is to get like a job done, which is to make a record that we hope can really deliver. Yeah. Have you seen Sound City, that documentary? Yeah, it's been a while, but yeah, I, I saw it. Yeah, it's really it's really cool. And I'm listening to, when I'm watching the documentary, I'm listening to everybody talk about what the space is like. And I'm thinking, man, Screaming Females will make a hell of an album. Because <laughs> they definitely fit the raw aesthetic of, of that space. And they'll, yeah. they'll make magic in there. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to your first album, Baby Teeth. And when I have it, I have a copy of it. I found it at a flea market on Long Island years ago. And just to see like how far you guys have come, like sonically, and and I'm thinking, okay, so you recorded that in your attic, and now you're in, and and then like 20 years later, almost 20 years later, you're in this studio. Like, so how do you compare the two experiences, doing recording in a professional studio and doing it in your attic, which can also be professional too? Yeah. Um. So. The first thing that comes to mind, um, not actually the the studio or the or my bedroom, as it were, for the first one, but is the a big difference between those is that um, that was our first album. We recorded it as we were really learning who we were as a band. So there's songs on there that were from old projects that Mike and Marissa had that we kind of reworked. It's a few songs we threw together pretty quickly. Um, but it was like we hadn't really developed our songwriting process yet when we made that record and that record was kind of like um, sort of exploring and discovering a little of that. So I feel like by the time we get to what if someone's watching their TV, the next album, pretty much the same process songwriting process we've had since that second record all the way through to the newest one. And we always try to experiment, do different things. There's no set um, formula for what a screaming female song is or how it gets written. But that first album, I feel like, is a real is really stands uh, aside from the rest of our output in the way the songs were written, because we just didn't know how to work together yet, you know. Um, yeah. And as far as the actual recording goes, um, you know, elements of that have come and gone. But um, for instance, we recorded to a click track on there because we couldn't record all three of us at the same time. There wasn't enough space and not, not enough microphones. We weren't going to be able to isolate, so it was like record a click track record the drums, then record the bass and guitars on top of that, do everything separately. Um, we didn't use a click track for the next three, uh, maybe four albums after that. And then we have for the last few. So it's weird, you know, it's interesting. It's like, you know, you get out of that situation, maybe you don't need a click track anymore because, you know, you can play all together. And then you're like, oh, wait, if we incorporate a click track, at least on some songs, we can do it this way. We can add different things in, do different kind of edits. Um but ultimately, everything we've recorded since then, we do all recorded in the room together. Not that all of our particular moments in that take are going to be the ones that end up on the record, but it is the energy of us all literally 
being in a room playing together, working off of each other, feeding off of each other. So that's the only album we ever recorded where that's not, that doesn't exist. It's just, I played, I had to like memorize the songs, which I'm pretty good at doing anyway, but you know, you're sitting there and you're just like, oh man, did this, did this part happen eight times or am I on the 10th time? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like when you're going into a, a studio, uh, this may sound obvious, but maybe not obvious to some people, but when you go into a studio environment, time is not on your side and you kind of have to know what you're doing and who you are as a band before you do anything. When you're recording in your attic, you can do whatever you want. So you're really just kind of figuring it out if you really want to be a band or, or whatever. But um, yeah, exactly. I think, and I, I yeah. feel like it's cool that you appreciate that because a lot of people yeah. think that the studio, you know, you go to someplace like Pachyderm, it's in a it's in like the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. It's beautiful outside. They're like, you guys are supposed to like vibe out while you're there. And you're like, no, man, this thing is costing a lot of money to be there every day. We got to get work done while we're there. We don't have a lot of time to vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's the it, it's like you, you can't just play Madison Square Garden because now it's like you're drawing people are paying to see you and you really have to have your, your, your shit together. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Exactly. Even if, you know, you're, you're, you're punk rock, but doesn't mean you can't, you, you still have to be professional. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. 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 You don't want to get up there and have your like a uh, jam session with somebody you just met in front of uh, thousands of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, know, you spoke on your, your relationship with Steve Albini and then you as a drummer, you probably would appreciate this. Like a lot of the records that he's worked on, even recently, you know, the the drumming is just like whoa and i'm not i'm not an engineer but i'm just hearing you know there there's a certain like crunch to it that's just like almost moving in a way would you agree yeah sure um steve is definitely known for his drum sounds um yeah it's uh he can do more than that like that's not like he, it's not like he's a one trick pony but a lot of people i feel like go to him with the hope of him getting helping them get that sound you know what i mean so i don't think it's like he's forcing people into a box but i think it's like you know a rock band shows up and they're like let's, let's i want how do we get that steve albini drum sound and a lot of it has to do with his studio he has like a, a purposeful built studio electrical audio yeah. in chicago and there's two two main studios there and the more the actually more expensive studio and fancier studio does not have as big of a live room and they can do like small orchestral recordings in there they have this extreme isolation room where it's one of those ones when you walk in you can kind of like feel like you're you can hear like your blood pulsing through your ears because it's so quiet like that kind of situation um so that studio gets used a lot um for stuff that you might not associate with stuff steve albini but then the actual cheaper studio has this gigantic live room with like these really really tall ceilings and these specially made bricks that he had trucked in from the southwest to make up one of the walls because they have a certain the clay has a certain quality to it or whatever and uh that's the room that delivers the the steve albini drum sound for sure so you know when we first started talking to um to the studio about recording there they're like I remember talking, um, this good friend of mine, actually, uh, Stephen Soli, who I saw last night, they were the uh, studio manager at the time there. And uh, they were like, so are you guys thinking uh, Studio A or Studio B? And they're like, wait, never mind. I, you guys are definitely gonna be in Studio B. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when, when you're working with him, you, you worked with him on Ugly and you did a live album um, with him. So when you is when you're working with him and the finished product, was it the 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 drumming that was like okay like 
wow, I'm glad, you know, we worked, this is definitely a Steve Albini result. Or was there something else with working with him that you took away with, like any kind of valuable experiences of working with him that you took away that helped you as a band outside of how he probably made you sound, if I'm making sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Steve is still a, a good friend of the band. Um, and I think that there's so much there that's outside of just like technical studio things that we learned or were able to take away. Um, he just has a really good perspective on being in bands and playing in kind of like working bands. And something that he is really about is that he likes to work and he's not afraid to work, you know? So most producers and engineers, they'll get points on a record. And I'm saying that people don't deserve that, but it actually turns into a a really complicated situation where you got to keep track of the expenses on a record in a different way so that you can pay out to the engineer or the producer over time. And yada, yada. Steve doesn't do any of that, although he probably could have just done a Nirvana record and a Bush record and he got a few points on him and never had to work again in his life. But for him, it's more important to be able to have bands consistently coming in and doing things as simple as that. It's something that's really behind the scenes. It's like a it's kind of like an industry uh, thing, but by not taking points, not having people sign contracts, not having to follow up for years about um, statements on like the sales of the record, it makes it so that smaller bands who operate in a different way can access that studio. And it might not even be about the upfront money, but it's just about the years of not having to have an accountant running, you know, every statement through a studio. Um, So I think that that ethic about like, if we want to make a lasting, if we want to make DIY and punk like really part of your life and not just like a moment, um, you gotta uh, you gotta be willing to work. And if you're in this to be a f- rich, famous rock star, or pop star, or something, maybe that'll work for you. That's possible. But there's a lot more possibility out there to be a fulfilled working musician. Um, if you operate on a smaller scale and are willing to put in that work and go play a lot of shows, go record a bunch of records at your studio, not just do two records a year um, and try to only work with the most famous artists. Yeah. It's like access is probably a problem for a lot of inspiring artists, not just bands. And the fact that Steve Albini is able to, to do that, you know, he's worked with so many, so many artists, Mets, Ty Siegel, and not just like, you know, famous superstars like, you know, Nirvana and Dave Grohl and all that, yeah. you know, he's doing, I think that's really great. And I think you guys have been doing it too. You're taking smaller bands on tour. I've seen shows with you guys. I remember 2015, you brought Potty Mouth with you uh, <laughs> at Music Hall of Williamsburg. You know, that that's really cool that you're, you're paying that forward. Um, so your new album, um, which um, I really love, I thought it was really uh, very, very exciting. It's, it was like, I'm going to bed last night and I knew I was talking to you, but like a lot of the songs were just in my head. We're just stuck in my head. Um, but before I talk about the new album, uh, Don Giovanni, right? Uh, your label. I know your first album, Baby Teeth, you um, it's it was self-released. And then around Power Move, you linked up with Don Giovanni. So the differences between self-releasing, working with a label, what does that mean now for a band? Because a lot of artists now are just kind of just doing it themselves or just putting stuff out and going viral or whatever it is. Um, I'm not even sure what what a lot of artists are doing now. So what what is like a label situation look like today from your perspective? And that's a really tough question because it's like yeah. always changing. And right now it's changing very quickly. It's mm-hmm. kind of like six months ago, 
I might've had a different answer than I do right now. Um, but one of the things, there's a few things that a label can really offer. One is distribution. So getting into stores and also just cleaning up all of the mess that's involved with uh, streaming distribution, because that's not an easy thing to handle. Um, when you, you know, maybe you can get your stuff over here, but when are you getting the like statements back from them and how do you break those things down? So distribution, uh, when we were completely just releasing everything ourselves, I tried to get distribution for us and I did, but if you're just one band, that's like a, a distribution company doesn't want to like open up an account for one band. You know what I mean? That's like a tough thing because then they got to keep accounts for and deliver statements to everybody. So for them to be able to, uh, for like somebody like Don Giovanni, where they had now have a large catalog, so they have a lot of uh, connections because they're talking to the distributor daily, you know, and that becomes a really big deal because I don't know every single record store that is appropriate for Screaming Females record to be in, in the country and especially not the world. These people have a better idea of that. So when they know that there's a new Screaming Females record coming out, they'll look up through um, their past accounts and be like, oh, this store in Arizona has ordered tons of Don Giovanni stuff, has ordered Screaming Females stuff. Like, let's make sure that we give them a call specifically, let them know this thing's coming. Doing that as an individual artist, really, really tough proposition. And then the other thing is just to be associated with something. It feels like, um, you know, it's really easy to be atomized in this kind of digital sphere, like you're saying, kind of like going viral or blowing up by yourself. Um, it still means something to me to be associated with a, a scene or a crew or just even if it's people I may not have like uh, communicated with directly. Um, it's people that I know are like friends of friends or who have an interesting history and we get to be kind of part of a little family. Yeah. Wow. That's a very uh, interesting perspective. And and I'm thinking about like now with the digital in the digital world, record stores is still a thing. You know, I went to a record store day thing last year. The line was out around the block. So it's kind of crazy how like vinyl has just outlasted all of these uh, weird trends in the music uh, business, even through the Napster stuff. So that's kind of crazy. How I can go to a record store and just find a screaming females record depending what like you're saying what store you're talking about in new york you're not gonna have any problems there finding that you know <laughs> yeah. they love y'all over here so <laughs> yeah um so the new album desire uh pathway the first thing i'm hearing track one and brass bell are the sense and i know you guys are no stranger to sense um off the top of my head chamber of secrets part two and you know a lot of sense on there um are you guys at a point now 18 years in uh, let's start adding a lot of like, you know, ingredients to our gumbo pot. Do you feel that way? I feel like uh, this goes back to something I said earlier, which is never, there was never like a formula set in place for what Screaming Females is going to sound like. There you go. Um, so we're always ready to bring in anything that we are capable of, you know? So I've spent a lot of time with synthesizers. I'm sitting in a room right now. I could pull them out. I have like a bunch of weird synthesizers and it's not like, it's not like I'm going to jump in and be like, okay, instead of playing drums, now uh, Scream Females has just these synthesizers and drum machines going. It just doesn't, it's not like, what it, it isn't what would serve our formula best, our band. But that doesn't mean that if I hear a moment where I think that that could add to it, I'm not going to jump in and be like, hey, let me try this this thing out on the synthesizer, you know? Um, 
So, and I, the same goes for percussion. Like I studied um, classical percussion for nine years when I was young. So um, when we get in a studio, I feel like I can do more than just bang a tambourine around, you know, um, as far as like the auxiliary percussion. And sometimes I'll hear a track where I'm like, I really hear, like, I can put a lot into this. I can make something happen out of this with uh, all different kinds of uh, little percussion instruments that I know how to play. But that doesn't mean I'm going to try to do it on every every track as well. So, um, so yeah, there's, it just goes back to there being no formula and, uh, I I've trained in a lot of these things or I've spent a lot of time working on them. Marissa is the other side of it. Cause she could sit down on any instrument and start to make it sound like music almost instantly. So, uh, if we're in a studio, you can just like, um, like, uh, at the end it's on, um, uh, at the end of uh, Rose Mountain, the song Rose Mountain, I think it is, uh, there's like this piano part happening. And it's literally because there was this weird piano in the studio and she sat down and started playing something on it. And we just like, we're like, we got to get a mic on that, <laughs> you know, and yeah. Marissa knows a lot more about playing piano now. She's actually pretty good. But at that point, she didn't really know any that much of anything about playing piano. She just sat down and started like banging out a melody suddenly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you ever think of when you're adding new tricks to, you know, uh, any of your, you know, your songs or your overall sound, do you ever think, well, people probably won't think this is like a Screaming Females song. Like, I know you guys as a band don't think there's one, you know, that, that you guys can't be pinned down. But do you ever think people that are listening to you do put you in a certain box? I mean, people definitely do. But I feel like the people that are most interested in our band kind of like don't. General, that's like pretty that's a big generalization but there's like it, with a lot of the reviews or a couple some of the reviews or comments about the new album i've seen some stuff a lot of references to either like classic rock or like 90s alt rock and i'm not saying that that stuff's not an influence on us it it certainly is but i feel like that's missing some sort of history of the uh in the lineage of like punk rock and independent music you know because uh the stuff that we're referencing in my head like can be tied as, as equally to Fugazi or even like something like butthole surfers as it can to, uh, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin or something. Um, or the selector. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, as far as like whether we think about it when we're playing, I, I would be, I would be lying if I said it and it's never come up, but it, like the thing I can think of off the top of my head is um, our song wishing well, which I feel like has become a fan favorite when Mike brought in that bass line, he was playing it um, in practice, like in between some songs, like as we were, you know, we were practicing song and then Marissa's toning our guitar or whatever. And he starts playing this bass line. And I was like, Oh man, what is that? And he's like, Oh, it's this thing I've been playing around with, but I'm not sure if it's, fits scream females the best because in my mind it's kind of almost like this motown sort of baseline uh and i was like hey man we've always said there's no formula let's give it a whirl let's see if we can turn it into something um because it sounds really good i really like the way it's sounding so uh like i said it's not like we've never thought these things but they've never really built a barrier to us trying something out we'll try something out. I feel like the only time it really comes into play is stuff like sequencing an album. If we got it, if we we're listening through, we got 15 songs. We want to trim it to 10, kind of pick out some of the songs. We take a look and we're like, let's make sure this there's some guitar solos on here. We don't want to <laughs> deliver a record where we uh, cut all the songs that got good guitar solos, because if you're going to come for a screaming females record, you probably want a guitar solo or two. 
Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, or or two. <laughs> so with ornament, um, you almost got rid of this song. So exactly how long was this song in the works, or how much time do you usually take uh, on a song before it's like, okay, we're either overthinking this or we're just not going to do this. It's hard to say. It's uh, I feel like there's only a few. It's probably less than ten songs that we've gotten past the point of having an A section and a B section uh, and we dump them. It's like happened so few times we get to a point and we're just like, we got to finish this out. Like we got an A and B let's find that bridge. Let's make this happen. You know, that song, it's just like, it still to this day has a lot of different feels butted right up against each other. As far as like um, the rhythms go, um, I'd say it's a pretty cohesive feel as a full piece. But for me as a drummer, it was like, man, it feels like I'm just like turning on a dime here, trying to like figure out, okay, now it's really straight ahead. Now it's got a little bit of a a swing. Now it's got like this build thing Um, and just trying to find all those feels. So I think we were trying to, for a while, sort of make it feel more natural to us as players, but everything we would try, it would feel less natural (laughs) so that just went on a long time um and i'd say that uh because of the pandemic it extended it even a lot further um so it's kind of unprecedented in everyone's lives but then it's unprecedented in our our songwriting process but there hasn't really been things that we like abandoned and came back to like years later uh that's not really something we've um we've done in our history so uh, I'd say that this it's a it's kind of a unique moment where we had something that we pretty nearly abandoned and came back to it like years later. And it's probably really ineffective, the pandemic and just getting back together and being like, what were we doing last time we actually played together? <laughs> well, the song is in my head now that we're talking about it, uh, which is a which is a good thing, because I, I look for songs like that. Like, that's how I got into music, just like melodies and just it's got to gravitate yeah. towards me in that way. So when I'm thinking about Screaming Females um, and uh, the, the amount of time you guys have been here, um, there's probably a lot of significant moments uh, for you uh, as a band, at least, you know, as a fan watching it happen, like you're, you're working with garbage, you're you're touring minor threats, practice space in, in D.C. Um, so do you do you look at all these things as like, whoa, we did that. That was cool. Or playing with the breeders and all this kind of stuff. Um does that have any weight to you at all? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, there's moments that have just as much weight that are like friends that I could tell you, like we hung out this one night on like, you know, sat on a porch somewhere in Indiana and that like, and I would never have met that person if it hadn't been for uh, being on tour. So they have like just as much, uh, those moments have just as much weight in my mind, but like, this is why we're out here doing this. You know, it's like, we want to like build these memories and have these experiences that we would never have had the opportunity to have otherwise. And then especially when you get people that you looked up to um, growing up um, or people that have like paved the way before you, when they come through and they say, uh, they show you one way or another that they appreciate what you're doing. That's huge. That feels, it feels amazing. You know, being up on stage, we actually played like uh, a cover with the breeders and I got to play drums on it and just being up there having the deal sisters turn back and look at me to count off the song. is just like, it's a surreal moment, you know, it's not something yeah. I ever thought would, would happen. I um, saw, I saw you guys at terminal five with, with the breeders. That was, that was nuts. 
Yeah. And and it, I heard Marissa, she was like, you know, this band is important to us. Hopefully they're important to you too. And that was true. The Breeders are important to me. Screaming Females are important to me. So it was kind of, it was really cool. To, that was a really good moment to see, to see that. Like, I love that. And I will say another significant moment for me, uh, you know, uh, being a fan of the Screaming Females for so long is you guys played a show at Times Square in a movie theater. I was like, this is incredible. You guys can sound good anywhere, either on a in a theater space or in a in a freaking movie theater. That was nuts. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, that was in the era where there was so much DIY stuff happening in New York that yeah. there was all these different crews and everybody was just always trying to find the newest spot that they could try to put a show on in. And most of the time that's some like weird warehouse in, in Brooklyn or something. But then <laughs> yeah. people getting the idea like what would be the weirdest place you could possibly see a DIY or punk show in New York times square? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's insane. That's the, it's kind of crazy. I think about that show like all the time. Um, but your garden party that you guys have been doing the last couple of years, like what's, the, what's the importance of that? Like, why did you guys, uh, what was the meaning behind putting that together? So that, that has like a long evolution. Um, we've only called it the garden party for the past, um, three times that we've done it, mm-hmm. but we had been doing shows in Jersey every, um, February, um, especially in Jersey city, um, for four years before that even, um, and then even before that, Don Giovanni Records used to run a yearly showcase kind of like celebration party often yeah. in February. Um, so it's just something that's sort of like evolved over time. And I think giving it a name sort of gives it like a, like a little bit more weight, you know, um, and uh, allows us to like grow, have it grow in a, in a way that I think would have been harder without like, you know, calling it something. But um, I don't know. It's just a, it's a fun thing to do in like a downtime for music touring and stuff. It's hard to tour in the winter. Or there's not as many shows happening. And then it's kind of a I, I ran uh, punk shows in New Brunswick for years and I would run three or four shows a month. And it was really about trying to get um, a cool mix of bands on a bill, bring people out who might not otherwise see this touring band, or maybe you get two bands that sound really different from each other. So you get two different, slightly different crowds coming in together and see if they can appreciate each other. And being able to do the garden party and book that is really just that same kind of feeling that I don't get as much these days, but on like a bigger scale, you know, and try to bring together um, uh, truly like independent artists and celebrate that. And uh, I feel like there's so many festivals that happen now that are, you see the the flyer, the poster come up and it seems like it's literally booked by like a Spotify algorithm. And we really want to like not have anything to do with that and sort of break that mod- that mold. Um, so, so yeah, it's just the three of us booking a, sh- booking a couple shows in New Jersey in, in the middle of the winter. Don't stop. Don't stop that. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's really cool that you guys do that, uh, especially like all the time. Yeah. You know, it's like you're giving back to this this state that made you guys, which is really cool. I think it's beautiful. Um, 18 years as a band. What are some of the things that you look back on like, whoa, we did that. And what are some things now looking forward that you can't, that you want to achieve? Well, um, one of the one of the things that's always amazing to me is the places we've been able to travel um, as a band and really, you know, we never had management. It's not like hooking up through these. It's always been people who kind of have a similar 
uh, frame of mind uh, and idea about what it is, what music can do and what it can do for a community um, that can be built or sustained through music. So we've been places, you know, literally on the trust of somebody emailing us and saying, do you want to come play a show in Costa Rica? And we're like, yes, we do. And they're like, we've never done a show for an international band, but I think we can. Do you want to make it happen? And we're like, yeah, let's make it happen. And, uh, you know, Ho Chin, who ran that show, is still somebody that we still talk to and we still see him. Um, last time we were in Europe, he was living in Spain and we saw him out there. Um, and coming up, we're going to Alaska this week and playing a week of shows in Alaska. And it's our 50th state. Uh, and I really um, hold uh, near and dear to my heart the time that we got to go to Hawaii. Um, and that was just the same thing. It was some some kids running punk shows who were like, we can bring you out if you want to go to Hawaii. And we're like, absolutely, let's do it. And we stayed in, in Chinatown and Honolulu and these um, kids loft and they just drove us around and show us, showed us all their favorite spots in Hawaii. I remember on the flight over, I had personally never been to Hawaii. It was my first time and also the band's first time. The in-flight magazine was saying, you know, like, Hawaii is a lot different than you might expect it to be. Um, like the whole, you know, when you land getting like a flower lay, like made from real flowers, you're probably not going to see that. If you do see the lays, they're probably like plastic lays, um, it's not something that's a tradition that you see as much anymore or whatever. So I like kind of tempered my idea. We ended up landing. It's a kid who's grown up in Hawaii. He's wearing his grandfather's like real Hawaiian shirt, which you, you can tell because they have like, they print the patterns inside out so that they're a little muted. So it's like really bright on the inside, but on the outside, wow. they're a little muted. And he gives us these flower lays. And I was like, the flight the in-flight magazine said that this wasn't going to happen, you know? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, my grandparents told me how to make them. I just, you just grabbed the flowers from the tree in your backyard and I made them myself. We always do it when people we care about show up or whatever. So, you know, for every musician that complains about how in touring, you maybe you, you know, you get to go to someplace like Paris and you're there for 14 hours and seven of them are loading in and sound checking and you know you never get to see anything the flip side of that is that you get to be temporarily embedded in like real like culture and local um you get all the local secrets out of you know the people that are running the shows and the other bands that are playing in a way that you don't get as a tourist and i'm really excited to be able to go do this for alaska now and the person bringing to us to alaska jaybird she uh, we've been trying to go for Alaska for a long time. We've been trying to always put feelers out there. And when she came through, we had a conversation with her on zoom and she was like, you know, you could, most bands that come and play Alaska from the lower 48, they play Anchorage and then they play Fairbanks, um, the big city in the college town. She's like, I think it would be really cool if you we went and played some other spots. She's like, I've been in bands in Alaska a long time. There's these other cities that have always had scenes, but bands never tour through. And I think it would be really fun. And she's like, and I want to make sure that when you do play Anchorage, you don't just play a bar and we try to do an all ages show, maybe support. She's like, there's this new uh, queer Latinx cafe that they've been doing drag shows. It'd be kind of fun to do uh, like maybe a punk show, all ages punk show there during the day, something like that. And we were just like, yes, we are so down. This is exactly what we want out of this trip. It's not just to mark it off the list and say, oh, we finally played every state. It's to actually go and see what Alaska's like and what the people there are doing, you know? 
See, I knew you were going to say something that was very communal like that. You know, it, it wasn't like, oh, I want to play with the Rolling Stones or go on <laughs> tour with like Foo Fighters or whatever. No, it's like, oh, no, we're going to go into this, you know, we're going to go to play this punk show in Alaska and out the outskirts of, you know what I mean? Like something really raw. That's awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> um, and you guys are in New York, April 28th at Elsewhere, which is so cool. Um, so, Jared, thank you so much for coming on the show. New album is Desire Pathway. So anything else you want to um, plug, this is your time. we got a bunch of shows coming up um, all over um, the U.S., uh, a couple of Canada shows, going to Europe. Um, so, yeah, just check out ScreamFemales.com. we got all the infos there. You can find the album for sale or streaming or all the tour dates. Awesome. Appreciate you, Jared. Thank you for coming out. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.